Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at Sebastian Vettel's win in the Australian Grand Prix and get excited about the World Championship fight to come. Before the Australian Grand Prix, all the talk was about whether or not Ferrari really had the speed that testing suggested, and after three years of Mercedes dominance, a victory for Sebastian Vettel was very welcome, as it would have been if anyone else other than a driver in silver overalls had topped the podium. It's probably the best start to the 2017 season in terms of offering a different storyline for everyone to get excited about, so uh, plenty to talk about in this Autosport podcast. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. And joining me today is someone who also has a very good reason to be pleased that it's not a Mercedes win. Why? Because he's Autosport magazine editor Kevin Turner, who had the unusual chance to put together a cover for our March 30th issue based on race coverage that didn't end up with a Mercedes winning. Unusual feeling, Kev? Absolutely. Uh, nothing against Mercedes, but it's nice to uh, have a splash of different colour on the uh, on the cover. Good for F1, generally, that uh, someone to take the fight to Mercedes, uh, and good for us, of course. Also joining me is Stuart Codling, Executive Editor of Autosport's sister title F1 Racing. Now I've got a bit of a problem with you today, Codders, as I hear rumours you were in Jersey in the Channel Islands a few days ago. Speaking as someone who hails from rival island Guernsey, I have to ask you to explain yourself before deciding if you can continue to be part of this podcast. Guilty as charged, Ed. 
I was in Jersey. And uh, I was not the only person visiting Jersey uh, this last weekend. Uh, There were over a thousand of us uh, visiting for the London Irish versus Jersey Reds, uh, IPA, Green King, whatever it is, some terrible booze uh, rugby championship, uh, at which we broke the record for attendance at their ground and confused the hell out of all the locals because of course we wear green and apparently the Guernsey football team wears green as well so as I uh, walked into uh, what turned out to be quite a dodgy pub with my uh, wife a guy coming out for a smoke wanted to know if we were from Guernsey. So that explains the black eye you've uh, you've come in with today. We t- well exactly. We we took one look inside the pub and saw the one TV showing greyhound racing, the other screen showing football. A band in the corner, not being paid attention to by anyone, and we finished our drinks and cleared out ASAP before injuries ensued. Yeah, I think I, I think I should clarify that uh, that Cotter does not have a black eye. His face is in as uh, as good a shape as it was last week. So make of that what you will. I, I'm quite rosy faced at the moment because we actually sat in sunshine for about the first time this season. Well, there you go. That's what you get for going to the Channel Islands. So, getting back onto uh, something more relevant and setting aside inter-island rivalries, let's get back to the Australian Grand Prix. It was a race that turned on one key decision, that of early race leader Lewis Hamilton to pit after 17 laps. This allowed Vettel to jump ahead of him. Codders, should we be talking about this race as one that Ferrari and Vettel won, or one that Hamilton and Mercedes lost? I think it's kind of six of one and half a dozen of the other really Ed because Hamilton never really got away from Vettel in the opening stages and he always seemed to be under a bit of pressure and and fighting it and then you you have to kind of look at their strategy and what really surprised me about the Mercedes performance this last weekend was that in effect they made the same mistake Ferrari made last year of pitting and giving up track position and at a circuit that doesn't really favour overtaking Gambling that someone a few positions further back is going to be pitting at the same time is setting you up for what actually happened, which was that that person, Max Verstappen, did not pit and caused a blockage that cost Lewis, what, two seconds or so? And that was the difference between winning and losing, really. I think it would be incredibly unfair on Ferrari to say that it was just a a race that Hamilton and Mercedes lost. So, yeah, I I agree with you. I think you've you've got to be close enough to put the pressure on to find where the weaknesses are. And Ferrari's done a remarkable job to, um, you know, from where they were last year, which was, it looked like they were falling away, and Red Bull had pretty much overtaken them by the end of last season. So to be up there close enough to an on-form Hamilton to put him under pressure and then to get ahead, I thought was um, you know, a very impressive performance and, and pretty encouraging for the year ahead. I think I had to disagree slightly, not completely. I'd maybe bias it a little bit more towards a Mercedes loss for the simple reason that, as Kev said, Hamilton had track position. They made a stop too early and that wasn't an unusual criticism of them because a lot of people went a lot longer and I think that if you look at the race situation as it was they were worried about a Vettel undercut but Vettel was going to end up stuck behind Verstappen if he'd done the same thing and forced the issue at that point so I kind of feel like they were it's almost like they just got a little bit too jumpy you know you don't you don't give away trap position and put yourself into that sort of situation Hamilton was ahead Okay, if if Vettel was on top of him and really looking mega threatening, that's one thing. What I don't understand is you can't say he was worried about being passed by Vettel and then Hamilton comes out, gets stuck behind a Red Bull and says, oh, you can't overtake. It's like, well, it has to be one of them. And I think probably Mercedes knew that. What I will say is just because Mercedes made life harder for themselves, they didn't play the race properly, doesn't mean that Ferrari were not strong. 
they were very strong and as was pointed out they were kind of going toe to toe Hamilton and Vettel early on so I kind of feel less less six slash six maybe you want to say <laughs> seven eight, of one five of the other eight of one and four <laughs> of the other perhaps nine of one three of the other I think it's uh, it, it was certainly not lucked into but the, but the other interesting thing in that first in was the fact that even when Lewis really piled on the coals to try and get away as we've seen happen many many times uh, Vettel was not only able to stay with him but actually look after his tyres better so on that day Ferrari had they had nailed it they'd got this at least on the ultra soft tyres they were in the ballpark um, and I think that the fact that the Vettel then drove away in the last stint maybe had more to do with Lewis realising the race the race was lost but I think um, I think they certainly deserve some, some credit for, for applying that pressure oh yeah yeah certainly credit I just think it's when you're the onus is on the team with a quicker car that hasn't got track position to, to do something and I feel that Maybe if that stop had made a few laps later and Verstappen and Raikkonen would have been less of a problem. I mean, Raikkonen would never have been a concern for Vettel if he pitted because he'd have um, he'd let him pass. But just that question of how likely was it Vettel was going to attempt an undercut at that point? And I feel it just kind of created it just created a situation they didn't need to, to put themselves in. Had it happened normally, let's say Vettel, had, they'd both stayed out, Vettel had pitted on, I don't know, and if he did, he stopped lap 23. So let's say Hamilton was still out there. He just still had a, a chance to stay ahead or react, or they could have ended up pissing at the same time or whatever. I just feel that even though there's a, a reasonable chance Ferrari could have jumped them anyway, you don't make it easy, do you? I think the positive thing is the thing to really get excited about is the fact that a Ferrari is quick enough to win a race on merit. And the only real question is not, well, the Mercedes fell apart or something completely weird was happening with tyres or track temperature, but they were very close on pace, arguably a bit ahead. And if not, they were on a similar pace or just that, just a fraction behind. And, and that's brilliant because it, it only takes two cars to make a season. That's all it takes. And we might just have that. That is good. It, 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 to my mind, one, one of the great positives to come out of this weekend is that the Ferrari pace that they showed in testing was not just some form of illusion that was designed to hoodwink us all and that they are not just close but really really close and it is very delicately poised and race wins and losses are going to come down to these small split second moments where you make a decision and it goes the wrong way and and, and things change so it's going to mean some quite hard fought Grand Prix if this form continues which it won't necessarily do but we kind of hope that it does. It'd be brilliant if it did wouldn't it? That's the key, isn't it? It's Ferrari's ability to continue development during the season. As they last year, they did they did fall away, didn't they? Um, so they really need to maintain that position now because I'm sure Mercedes will go away and sort out their tyre usage. They're not that Mercedes won't fall away. So Ferrari, yeah, the the onus is really on them to maintain that. But I completely agree that um, it was a very pleasant surprise. I'll be honest, I was expecting Ferrari to get to despite the fact that they were close in testing arguably ahead you might say that they Mercedes would just turn up the wick and disappear on the on the weekend so especially after Friday practice where Ferrari didn't look great they looked poor, Vettel wasn't they? happy with the with the balance and you know you look you're following what's going on there and looking at the lap times and the long run times were even worse than the headline lap times you were thinking this is this this is feeling like the last three years again which it's not to do down what Mercedes are doing or what Lewis Hamilton's doing but you just want it to be a a competition on track and I think people get more excited about fights between teams, lead drivers with different oh, teams rather than two drivers from the same team. Because we've had some close races between Hamilton and Rosberg over the last few years, but I think people want to see you know, a Ferrari or a Red Bull or in the distant future, perhaps a McLaren fighting with them at the front. The man in the street wants to see something other than a silver car 
winning every other week because that means a change in the narrative and also i think that um the dare, dare we mention the words mainstream news media are who there's the mainstream media we're, we're, who the, are they? We're, the, we're the news media we're all of it aren't we uh, fake news <laughs> no not that again <laughs> not that again but um they their interest in formula one declines according to the number of mercedes wins they have to report and it gradually you can see it through the season dropping further and further down the uh, order of the news bulletin behind the results of crew alexander versus accrington stanley in the johnson paint cup or something like that and that's when you know that formula one's really fallen off the radar and the best thing is that if you get two cars with similar performance let's say the basic performance over the season the mercedes and the ferrari happens to say the same it will never be exactly the same because it'll ebb and flow with the characteristics of the circuit you know how what the balance is of the straights to corners the length and the style of the corners obviously albert park is a very different circuit to barcelona it's it's not got the same kind of long quite so aero dependent corners so you could see this ebb and flow whereby one week it's ferrari the next week it's mercedes is this the right time to start talking about setup and um tire life because it seems to me that we're getting mixed messages on both of those we've had Ferrari saying that they went the wrong way on setup a little bit, didn't get the balance right on Friday. Red Bull also seeing that. And then drivers having different opinions on how easy it is to switch the tyres on. Raikkonen saying it's easier than it was last year. Other people saying not so much. Well, could that be revealing as to who, who's got who's got it right so far? Um, yeah, you'd like to think that it's um, that it's easier. I think it would be better for fans if it was easier because you want more teams... Uh, so that you, you know you don't want to have a weekend where someone's completely out of it because they've not switched the tire on. Unless of course it's a team like Mercedes who's about to dominate. So we saw at Singapore a couple of years ago where they were completely out of it with the tires. It actually gave an opportunity for somebody else to win. But if you've got a close fight, you want I think all the top guys to be you know to be in the window and and, and battling away. And ideally, you have small things with the tires and with the setup. You know, not massive things. And this all feeds into what makes for an interesting season. So if you have say, two cars that are on a similar performance level and hopefully Red Bull will get into the fight. And imagine that, if you could have a three-way fight. It's probably a bit too much to, to hope for, but it's not impossible. Then it's these tiny little differences. You know, it was, it was a small difference in the race that made the difference between Hamilton winning and Vettel winning, and it was always going to be because of their relatively similar pace, even if the pendulum was one way or the other. It was never going to be by vast amounts. So these tiny little things and getting your setup exactly right, and then maybe there's a qualifying setup versus race setup trade-off to be made. And suddenly... It puts a lot more pressure on teams. Mercedes hasn't had to think about this. There have been times when it's had enough of an advantage where if Mercedes went into a weekend, and let, there will have been weekends where they didn't get the best out of the car. Having that advantage covers up a lot of vices. Where are we on Red Bull? Because we didn't really see everything they could do this past weekend because obviously Ricardo had a nightmare after shunting in qualifying. So he was pretty much out of the race. And then Verstappen, he was in it while uh, Lewis was behind him, but that wasn't a net position at all, was it? So he was in that sort of hinterland where he was not as fast as the leading battle, but he was far enough ahead of the cars behind that uh, he kind of didn't really factor. Yeah, Red Bull's looking very third at the moment. Not a million miles away from the top two, but but not close enough to be to be in that in that spread. So that, that will worry them. Obviously, they did have quite a few new bits on the car, at the weekend so there's time for them to get the most out of that but it's a bit worrying for Red Bull and then of course there's the whole question about Renault there's reasons why they'll be arguably not at the maximum potential 
but at the same time there'll be reasons why maybe some upgrades were not on the car as early as they might have been in testing and why they've had to revert to older spec components that's across all the Renault cars with the Renault Renault so it's a little bit worrying Red Bull's got a lot of work to do because not only have they got to make up the gap they've also got to find the time to peg the others as well so if if the others find two tenths between now and Spain Red Bull needs to find two tenths plus They've been the disappointment, I think, so far. I think with the opening up of the aero regulations, we expected, I think even after testing, I sort of half expected a, an all-new-looking Red Bull to appear <laughs> in Australia here, yeah. with all sorts of clever Adrian Newey-type bits on and that they'd be right in there. So, yeah, a little bit dis- disappointing, really, because um, you, know, you want to see as many teams at the front as possible. I think they will develop their way probably into the game as the course of the season goes by. Um, but I think, Ed, you've talked about it before, you know, you can't make up for uh, time and points given away early on in the season. It's all very well having equal quickest car by the end of the season, but if the other guys have already put a load of points on the board, of course, that's actually what caught Red Bull out in 2009. I'm sure Adrian knew he would point to the, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. To the double diffuser and everything with Braun. But Braun had a pretty mediocre second half of the season 2009, and Red Bull won lots of races, but but Jensen Button had, had enough of a lead to hold on to the championship quite comfortably in the end. It helps you a lot when you've got that edge because you can afford to play it a bit conservative sometimes, whereas if you're playing catch-up, you have to be aggressive. And if you're aggressive all the time on every decision, with every approach, you're going to come unstuck sometimes. And there's so many examples of that happening. Kimi Räikkönen in 2005, uh, for example, being a, being a classic one where they had to go aggressive and, and they just couldn't quite catch up. Even though when you look at the gap in isolation, the number of races, you think, yeah, that's not too much. But it, it's it's not easy. And I think, I'm not writing Red Bull off, but put it this way, you're going to need to get, by the time they get to Spain, they better hope the Renault package is improved and that, and that the car's there. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a very, very, very long, hard season. In the meantime, they need some wet races yeah, don't they? That would that that would help. If we had a wet race at round two or round three, and um, well, actually, either one of the Red Bull drivers won, that would be that would be quite a good extra storyline and keep them maybe in the picture while they while they catch up. It'd be brilliant for F one as well because Ricardo and Verstappen are both fantastic drivers who I want to see in a title fight. You're not wrong, and um, don't rule out rain in Bahrain because we all saw what happened in the Qatar MotoGP at the uh, weekend. And it rhymes, rain in Bahrain. Yeah, rain in Bahrain. I I, I can see headlines coming along. Possibly even cover material, Kev. I don't know why you're looking yeah. at me. Yeah. I, I do, remember, I do remember it raining in Bahrain before the start of the Grand Prix a few years ago for about 20 seconds. Yeah, just and then tw- it realised it, just it was not desired. To, to the point where you just sort of think, was that rain or did someone just pour a bucket of water over me or something? That happens to me often. So. <laughs> what, was he walking down the street in Richmond to our yeah, shiny exactly, New York? Exactly, exactly. What do you think, um, in terms of the title battle about the prospect of the teammates getting involved because at the moment it's Hamilton versus Vettel and um, if we if we look back to what the Bottas and Raikkonen did this last week that very very different performances I thought Bottas had a quietly good weekend whereas Raikkonen just was kind of nowhere very underwhelming and after my piece of punditry in last week's podcast I'm very disappointed. Kimi Raikkonen is a source of immense frustration to me in the second Ferrari, I'll be honest, because I think it's quite a long time since he's really been able to deliver at the top level. Arguably, really, since he came back, actually. Um, I know Cer- certainly few- on a consistent basis. There, yeah. are, there are flashes, but it's been enough on a long time as a world champion. You expect consistency. Uh, yeah, and I think probably we, we thought maybe he was having a bit of a renaissance last season, but I, I, I think maybe it was more to do with the fact that Vettel was getting frustrated and not perhaps performing. I mean, Vettel's fantastic the weekend, and he really stretched the lead, you know, the lead over Kimi. He was half a second quicker in, in qualifying. 
Uh, and frankly, Raikkonen never saw him in the race either. You know, he only banged in the fast lap right at the end when Verstappen was getting sort of, you know, within range in the Red Bull in a car that, you know, we've just discussed isn't quick enough. Um, and at the moment, it looked, you know, Bottas, in his first weekend at Mercedes in a front-running car, actually didn't do a bad job. He qualified closer to Lewis than Rosberg, Nico Rosberg ever did in Melbourne and finished within the second and a half of him at the end of the race. That's a pretty good effort. And you look at Raikkonen compared to Vettel and you think it's, it's, it's going to be three drivers in the title fight at best. I think it's I think it's okay from Bottas. I'd expect a little bit more. I think he's point two nine three behind in qualifying. I'd expect a little bit better going forward. But I think your point about Melbourne is a valid one in terms of the Rosberg comparison. I just I just have maybe higher expectations for Bottas than than some do. I'm expecting him to be giving Hamilton a hard time in qualifying because he has got a qualifying lap in him. But but you're right in general. If you're looking in the second car already, we've kind of established that Bottas is a stronger, if you want to call him, second driver at Mercedes than, than Raikkonen is. He is frustrating, Raikkonen, because he's got this immense ability. I've seen him do some wonderful things, and you just look at him and you think, well, you've got to deliver it. You know, for, He was fine, he wasn't bad, he, he, did, he did a perfectly decent job. He beat Verstappen, but he, he's not there just to do a perfectly decent job, for my money, and... If he's the driver, he should be. He should be. He should be doing more. I think the driving level in Formula One, well, actually motorsport generally, but in Formula One these days, is such that you know doing an okay job in one of the best four cars on the grid isn't really good enough. I think yeah. it's a struggle to say it's good enough in a midfield car when it's a really close fight in the middle. But to to, to you know to tool around, okay, yeah, he finished. He finished fourth, which was probably the minimum that you would expect from him. He didn't get beaten by a slower car as such, but he didn't really put the top three under pressure either. And I think really, for a top liner, a former world champion, 20-time Grand Prix winner, you would legitimately expect more. But then we've been saying that about Kimi for the last few years, and Ferrari don't seem to mind. And again, it would be brilliant for Formula 1 if he could be winning races as well and getting the maximum, because you've got potentially four cars that can win races at the moment. Maybe Red Bull will join them. You want all... The dream is all six of those... Going into a weekend, any one of these six can win. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Could be the difference between winning and losing the Constructors' Championship as well, the second driver performance. Well, exactly, yeah. And and it impacts the Drivers' Championship. There is, of course, the argument there that if you've got a very clear number one and number two, that makes it easier in the Drivers' Championship. But I, also, I always think that you're better off, if you've got a car capable of finishing one-two, you'd rather be finishing one-two. And if you're the guy finishing first, you want your title rival third behind your teammate. Really, that that gives you the options. I made a note about Kimi because um, uh, one of one of the reasons cited for his lacklustre performance was um, overly conservative time management. And the note I wrote was, "How long until conservative time management ceases to be a good excuse?" Before Qu- the weekend, I, I, th- <laughs> I think it may have. Yeah, I think it may may be off the list now. I mean, it does take a little bit of time. I remember when we had the big change of rules with refueling outlawed for twenty ten. Everyone was very conservative on fuel in the first race, and it was all a little bit quiet and processional. <laughs> some of that season was that way. But there was some conservatism. You'll excuse a little bit of feeling your way in, but you need to do it because, unfortunately, in Kimmy's case, and I stress he is, he is capable of being a wonderful driver, but there's too many times where there's just something that isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. The feel isn't right. The front end isn't right. And this goes back a long way now, unfortunately. We're all three of us going to be crucified on social media now for daring to uh, criticise. Well, the, the, the thing for me is, if you think Kimi Raikkonen is a proper top-line mega Grand Prix driver, he was the weakest of the drivers in the top four cars, unquestionably. So for, that has to be underperforming. 
if you say that's enough that to finish fourth, you know, he wasn't seconds behind Vettel in terms of overall performance, but it just needs to be better. If you think we're being harsh, then you're basically saying Raikkonen is expected to be kind of just a solid, okay, I'll drive around and finish fourth. Great, but he's, he's better than that. He remains inexplicably popular in surveys and such. I, I, there's a theory about that, isn't there? In that because he doesn't say very much, you fill in the gaps. I think he is a bit uh, of a blank slate. Uh, uh, yeah, you, you you sort of project onto him. Like some people see him as a bit of a James Hunt type character. But in fairness to James, when he you know well, no matter what he was doing outside the car, he would jump in it and you know stick it on pole. And he certainly wasn't beaten by his teammate as often as Kimi has been. I think that's the difference. You can kind of have the lifestyle out of the car, but you still got to get in and do the job when you when when the time comes. I don't think Jochen Mass would be beating Kimi Räikkönen though, but that's. Uh... That's, 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 certainly not these Maybe days. Maybe the Group C car. <laughs> um, but anyway, again, nothing would be better than for Kimi Räikkönen to get a win in the first few races. He's always handy at Bahrain, so there's there's a, there's a possibility there. But you know, it, it just needs to do better. Now, obviously, we've talked about the battle at the front. There's been a lot of talk this year about the new rules, the new regulations, the style of racing, what the cars look like, etc., etc., etc. Before speaking to Codders and Kev about this, obviously, for those of you listening, there's a chance to get a little bit involved in the, in this feedback. Motorsport Network, which is the owner of Autosport and F1 Racing, among others, has recently launched the F1 Global Fan Survey. If you head to f1survey.motorsport.com, uh, you'll be able to fill in the survey. Give yourself a few minutes to do it. it it's thorough because it needs to be. It's not just a two-minute job. It's a, it's a proper survey for proper fans to explain what they want. So coming back to what we saw... What do we think of the racing? Good, bad, great, spectacular cars, big step forward, step back, not as sold. Pick well, you're one talking of the about a couple of different things there, pick, aren't you? Pick, Which, one, pick one of the above. Well, pick your favourite. I think that's the problem. What do you go for? You know, on the one hand, people say they want faster cars. The drivers said they wanted faster cars. A lot of the fans said they wanted faster cars. We've got those. Uh, was there a lot of overtaking at the weekend? I think if you look past the fact that Ferrari beat Mercedes and we're you know pleased that there's a potential title fight. There wasn't a lot of overtaking, and a lot of the drivers are complaining that overtaking is going to be really, really hard now. So if you make cars faster, especially by giving them more aero, you, so they're cornering faster, you're shortening the braking distances, you're going to make overtaking harder. But you have made the cars faster. Well, which which one do you want? You sort of have to make a decision, I think. And the cars do look better. I think they look, look cool. Um, and lap records are going to fall this year, but I'm not sure that the racing will be particularly brilliant. On the other hand, the fastest driver in the fastest car is usually one, and it has been so ever since someone found Tazio Nuvolari under a gooseberry bush. So I don't know why people complain about that sort of thing happening. With motor racing, what, what you hope for is an evolving narrative happening somewhere the, that you can tune into. And to my mind, the Australian Grand Prix has always been a bit of an outlier because it is a race where either everyone acts like it's first day back at school and chaos ensues or it can be a little bit processional and can come down to reliability or otherwise. It's a good point that generally the memorable Australian Grand Prix at Albert Park are not great races. They're races in which a bunch of stuff happened and cars got wiped out of the first corner and Ralph Schumacher gets launched up in the air and Martin Brundle gets launched up in the air and uh, Fernando Alonso gets launched up and there's a lot of being launched up in the air going on there. But you know, or people spinning out the lead. And Montoya lost a race there. Unexpected things happen. But there's not many when you sit back and look, right, the really great wheel-to-wheel races. So it's, it's not a great circuit for overtaking. And it would be a mistake uh, to pretend to, that it was. So this is not representative. I think, as you said, Cotter, it, it is an outlier. So you have to be a little bit careful. That said, it is within the the kind of the, the prior expectations were that it, it will be harder to overtake. 
because of course it will be. Yeah, I'll, but I, I don't want to join the rush to announce that Formula One is broken before we actually no, have no, enough no, no. data to analyse well, that. The thing is, I always there's two ways you can look at what happened in that race. That race will be remembered as the one when everyone was expecting Mercedes to keep winning after three years of winning. Hamilton led early on, everyone was thinking of the same old story. And then you had the reverse, so Vettel jumped Hamilton. Brilliant. That's all that you really need. It only needs one thing to, to actually make a race. And if you look back, if you look at where the race was at the end of the first lap, not that many specific things happened. You had that switch. Positions three, four, five stayed the same. Massa drove around in uh, in sixth place. He was the only car not to be lapped. Uh, it, well, he was the only car from the outside the top three teams not to be lapped. And then behind that, you've just got Kvyat went long, got ahead of science and had to have his extra stop to have a have an air, air top up. So he dropped back a tiny bit. Grosjean retired from a points position. Alonso climbed into the points partly as a result of that and then retired an Ocon going. That's basically the Australian Grand Prix in terms of, and that's not a problem because it's a fallacy that needs to be constant thrill ride stuff happening. But like you say, it does depend on what people actually want to happen. Actually, to define interesting racing, you want it to be a little bit unpredictable. It doesn't have to be swapping positions every other corner. You know, if you do get a race like that, great, but <laughs> precious few of those in uh, in any racing categories, really. Maybe the old Formula Ford race, but it just doesn't happen. But you want different things to happen. And if this race happens and then the Chinese Grand Prix happens and Lewis Hamilton wins in a, a different way and then you go to Bahrain and it's just something different, Rush, as long as it's just a little bit different. I think that I think that's all correct. But one thing I would say is that we got to a point in perhaps was it the early noughties, maybe the late nineties, even where someone would come up behind another car, even if they were quite a bit quicker, and you just knew they weren't going to be able to overtake. Uh, and and you want to have the possibility that somebody can overtake. Yeah, agree. You, I agree that you don't want overtaking all the time. I've seen plenty of you know club level races where overtaking is happening every other corner, and you think, well. It almost becomes meaningless. Because That's the old catering actually, racing thing. You are, yeah, you uh, you want, and also a, a, a really good overtaking manoeuvre. You know, it, it's a rare thing. You know, it's got to be a hard thing to pull off. So I don't think you want overtaking all the time. But I think when someone comes up behind someone else, you want it to be the the possibilities there that's happened. And the, no, the initial sounds are that. That that's that's not the case with these cars, but I think you know Ross Braun, who's coming in, is going to be looking at this. This is a this is one of the three to five year plan things, isn't it? You've got to work out how you're going to make cars quick, but also be able to overtake. So whether that's you know ground effect type stuff, you know fewer wings, you know, I, there are ways of looking at it. I think you also have to be really careful about the the old conventional wisdom that the underfloor ground effect is is the secret of following because it's been a long time since we've had Grand Prix cars of that nature when they were around they were still pretty rudimentary as were top surface aerodynamics so it's not i think ross braun said this recently it's not been the proper proper research into it It may be the valid way to go but i'd like to know a little bit more about how extreme and how critical the kind of underbody arrow would be because i think it's that's there's a danger that that becomes a little bit of an easy answer i think that's fair i think that's why ross braun said you know we need to look at it properly and not do any any you know quick fixes which, which never happens enough well yeah but that, i'm thinking more that, of, if you think of more well. mid to late 90s carts which had a bit more ground effect and not so sophisticated you know wings and things there was th- that was an area where you had a a de- for me a decent level of overtaking you know you could have somebody like an alex and Ardy come through the field on a street circuit but the passing news would be memorable or a, yeah, very a great lunge at Laguna Seca. So it was possible, but you still had to have someone that was on it and hooked up to pull it off. That, that's, I think, the sort of sort of mm. area you'd like to be in. I'd agree with that. The, the interesting question, and something that Melbourne couldn't show us, was how the DRS plays into this. Now, the DRS is 
widely reviled and hated. I'm not a massive fan of it fundamentally, but I will accept it was quite a good solution to the problem posed within the available tools, should we say, um, even if it's not necessarily an elegant one. But the aim of DRS was always to create contested braking zones. Even if you arrive side by side, the driver who's on knackered tyres can't have anything like the braking effectiveness, so it's not contested. Maybe, with the DRS zones tuned correctly, and Charlie Whiting did say ahead of the Grand Prix that they will, after the first few races, have a look at the way that the DRS is working. Melbourne, the straights aren't long enough, generally, for it to be a, a proper test, but you just might find the DRS comes into its own a bit more as a tunable device. We've had the odd race over the past few years where that's happened. I think it was a Valencia race where we were getting genuinely contested braking zones at, at times. So that that's the interesting question. You never know, that might actually prove to become a good thing if you can actually attack on the tyres. More thought and research required on that, I think, because the sport has suffered over, well, for, for quite a long time from what I believe is known as seagull management, uh, which has been Bernie flies in uh, with with an idea or a diktat, deposits it on the table and then flies off again. And um, it, it has to be put into motion. And the, the technical regime we have now is a classic case of that, where a, an edict was delivered uh, that the cars had to be this much faster and look sexier and all that sort of thing. And then it goes through the strategy group, which um, is an organisation that, to my mind, is capable only of performing dirty protests on anything. Uh, they almost seem to willfully screw anything up that comes across the table. Even there's, even most of the people on the strategy group know, know it's a bit stupid. You know, and, and we, we're sort of digressing here into, into a sort of an almost Dieter Renkin-esque rant about uh, F1 governance. The, the hope that we have is that Ross Braun will take a much broader view of how things will work the good thing about ross is he's he's an intelligent person he's a sensible person he's not afraid like for example the drs example i don't know how it's going to work out it's just interesting to see i don't i can't predict it i can't say you know maybe it'll make a difference and ross is not afraid of saying actually we don't really know i'd like us to know before we make decisions and i think that's the that's the key that we have this new structure at the top of the at the top of formula one and they need to really understand what they're trying to achieve because only if you understand correctly what you're trying to achieve can you create a strategy to achieve that rather than just saying oh we want this to happen so let's do that law of unintended consequences of always a common problem you can't ever change anything in isolation everything is everything is related you change the tires that affects everything it's not just tires and tire management you change the bodywork rules that affects everything it's just, it's just the way it is and that makes it very difficult and anyone i think who sits there and says yeah this is the easy answer this one thing these two things are the answers they're not it's it's more subtle than that and the starting point is right what actually do we want to achieve what is the end point we would like to get then you can decide what you need to do. Then you can set a timetable for doing yeah. it. Begin with your outcome and then work backwards from that with a focus on achieving it rather than throwing a bundle of ideas at the Exactly. There's, there's, a, there's a little stick. bit too much, we want this outcome, and then you just go back to the beginning and just throw ideas at it. But it's just, well, that's just outcomes. Anyone can say, well, we want this, that, the other. How you get this, that, and the other, that is the challenge. Yeah. And Bert, Bernie Eccleston's known absolutely nothing about Formula One technology, going back to when he was first a team owner and used to make them put the uh, fastest, softest tyres on because they're quick, aren't they? And then he would be mystified when they shredded partway through the race. I think it's also fair to say that deregulation isn't necessarily the answer either. I've heard it said before that oh, you should just go back to regulations from 
the 50s, the 70s, the whichever era that the person speaking remembers most fondly, in the thought that changing the rules will then suddenly mean F1 is full of Maserati 250Fs or Lotus 79s. But of course that wouldn't be the case, because with all the knowledge that we've got now, those those rules would be so loose, you'd have a turbocharged, supercharged, six-wheel ground effect thing that doesn't break at all, does average... 170 miles an hour around the circuit and doesn't overtake and drives knee G suit. So you do need some regulation there to stop it becoming too expensive and, and, and more of a technical exercise than a sporting one. Well, this is critical. For a long time in motorsport, it was technology limited, ultimately. It was always limited by what was known. There's a lot of guesswork. You're working in grey areas. But as the understanding has grown, it's had to be restricted more by the regulations. And that, that's where it needs to go. And the key question is, what do you want it to be? And that's, that's the positive thing with the F1 Global Fan Survey. So if you can head to f1survey.motorsport.com, we'd love to know as much as we possibly can about what the fans want, the people who are actually watching and and absorbing the sport. But we will deliver it to people who will listen because the the new owners are actually interested in growing and evolving the sport rather than squeezing it. It's something F1 needs, needs to do. And it's the reason that this survey has been has been launched. If I can refine my previous statement, obviously the new owners uh, want to squeeze it as well because they're interested in making money, but they at least appreciate the fact that more juice comes out if you grow it first. Head to the Global Fan Survey. You can find it on autosport.com, on motorsport.com. It's all over social media and it's open for a couple of weeks, having been launched on the Sunday morning of the Australian Grand Prix. So, so please head there. Now, getting back to... The Australian Grand Prix specifically, it's worth just mentioning the the rest of the field outside the top three. Uh, as mentioned earlier, everybody up to Massa, who finished sixth, was was lapped. Uh, Massa and the Williams seemed to be pretty much clear as the the kind of best of the rest, almost ahead of the the rest of the uh, the rest of the midfield. Obviously, we didn't see what Haas could do because Grosjean uh, retired early on with uh, with a water leak having run I think he was was he, he was 6th or 7th early on wasn't he yeah so he, he qualified 6th as yeah, well so, which he was, was, uh, so he was well up dynamite. there yeah Matt exactly. jumped to at the start so he? so he was well up there up there for points and then we saw Perez 7th Sainz and Kvyat 8th and ninth. Ocon came through to 10th Hulkenberg in the Renault just outside 11th so, so what do we learn there this was a very nebulous part of the field an amorphous part of the field in testing wasn't it it could just come down as with the battle at the front to the performance of dare we say it based on this this outcome the the number two driver or or the other driver it's going to take both drivers to be putting in a good performance because um in terms of who finishes fourth in the constructors championship which is a financially beneficial place to finish you have obviously Massa is going to rack up the scores for Williams but Stroll kind of needs to join the point scoring club which he obviously didn't for a number of reasons this time out and then you look at Haas you've got Grosjean who's proved he can nail it in the top 10 Magnussen had a bit of a stinker this weekend poor qualifying and then got into a needless shunt at the beginning of the race. So once again, you've got possibly either no, no car scoring if they prove to be unreliable or just one. Um, and then look a little bit further back, Force India, Perez and Ocon have shown that they can 
pretty much hang it out there. I was very impressed with Perez's race and also pretty impressed with Ocon as well from a lowly grid position. Well, Perez, Perez, interestingly, just to uh, to interject, in our in our driver ratings by Ben Anderson, our, uh, our Grand Prix editor, he gave Perez 10 out of 10. And it, it, it's worth mentioning that simply because quite often in the midfield, if you're watching on television, it's easy to kind of miss those sorts of performances, the quality that one and Perez really, really drove well, which I think is a, a good a, a good illustration of how Williams has got that little advantage in that although he drove very well, Massa was was well up the road and never really under threat from it. I have to say is that I've criticised Felipe Massa in the past and I was pretty underwhelmed when Williams decided to to bring him back when obviously Bottas moved on. Um, but I thought he did a pretty good job at the weekend. So he jumped. Yeah, he Gros- I mean, Grosjean's qualifying lap, I think, is going to be one of the qualifying laps of the year, actually. But, uh, yeah, Massa got ahead of him at the start and finished a you know, pretty solid sixth which uh, which is, is is really what he needs to do. Um, yeah, Lance Stroll had a bit of bit of a stinker, didn't he? But uh, I think you're looking at the driver lineups. You know, um, if if Daniel Kvyat can keep up that level, then Toro Rosso look, looking good. I mean, Carlos Sainz was one of the stars of last year, but Kvyat had a very troubled season. You know, started off at Red Bull, you know, basically sacked and moved into Toro Rosso. But he looked back on it again. He was only a fraction behind Sainz. Most he's got a lot. He's got a lot of ability, Kvyat. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it it looked last year. Like he was doomed, basically. It was at Spa when, basically after qualifying, he felt like he was ready just to pack his bags and walk away, never to return. Yeah, he looked and very it, depressed looked, last year. Uh, exactly, and it looked at that point like even if he didn't do that, somebody else was going to do it for him and he, he wasn't going to be able to continue. But he's got ability, you know, he, he really has. And it's probably good for him to come in and have the, have this uh, this good start to the year. And it is important for a team like Toro Rosso, two points scoring drivers. Obviously, Force India had both drivers on the points. Ocon spent quite a bit of the race losing time uh, behind behind Fernando Alonso and obviously he's going to settle in this is his first full season having done half a year with Manor but that seems a strong driver lineup. Williams is interesting I agree Massa drove really Massa is a, is a funny one he's got he has got a lot of ability I was I was concerned about the overall level of motivation it rem- remains to be seen whether it, he's at this level all through the year he can be you never know completely what you're going to get but while I'm a little bit sceptical about whether he's the the best possible option for that, even though the options were so limited, it, it would be great to see him have a kind of this bonus season. The fact that he's retired and unretired has has helped that. That he just this is just a an extra bonus season. He's probably under no illusions that he's going to be at Williams beyond this year. Maybe maybe it just takes all that pressure away, and he can just he can just enjoy it in a in a very positive way on track. I guess the caveat that we we don't know the answer to really at the moment is. Did he maximise that car, or would Bottas have been twenty seconds down the road in the car? It's impossible. Yeah, was it clearly fourth? Or did Nelson Piquet syndrome. Yeah, we, we, we just we just well, don't really know. Well, there was, a, stage, there was at the a, moment he's doing. Yeah, he's doing what is required. Yeah. Of well, he he couldn't have finished better than six in that race, just as I don't think Perez could have finished better than seventh. So, so that they both yeah drove drove, uh, drove extremely good races. Stroll's an interesting one. I'm a little bit bored of the fact that people are laying yeah. into Stroll quite so much. He won 15 odd races in European F3 last year. He's won Italian F4. Yeah, he's got great backing behind him, which has brought the opportunity. And that the pressure is there. He's at the top level. So, yeah, he's not allowed to be exempt from criticism. But actually, let's give him a little bit of a chance. And when he went off in the race, it was because of a brake problem. He did have an off in practice. So, you know, it's not a perfect start. But let's give him kind of seven or eight races to settle in and, and see where see where he see where he comes to rather than... I think just deciding that he's the the driver in the field to be just to be derided. Yeah, uh, I mean, all, have, all the time ju- judging by judging by what he what he does over a reasonable period. 
having met him, I was very impressed with how determined and grounded he is and, and he doesn't fit with the narrative that a lot of people would like to run it's this idea of the sort of spoiled brat who just wants everything bought for him yeah that's, that's I, the, just, it's uh, just nonsense I, I found him com- completely the opposite and all the people who've worked with him uh, say that he works exceedingly hard to better his craft and that he's very gifted and the the only criticism from people in the know that is levelled against him is that he sometimes tries too hard because he's trying to play catch up and he wants to be kind of up there with with the best i think so. we saw that a little bit in testing uh certainly watching trackside and, uh, and gary anderson picks up on it as well just that sort of just forcing the issue a little bit you know maybe the one criticism of the overall ways come in is i would probably say that if you've got the chance to take a little bit of a longer run up at it it doesn't do any harm to take each step and had he done the sort of gp2 well, f2 as it is now level that would probably have helped. For example, the the counterpoint for comparison was Lewis Hamilton, who did Formula Renault two liter. Then he did Europe. Uh, then he did uh, European Formula Three. Then GP two. He didn't skip steps. He did two years in Renault UK, uh, two years in F three, and then one year in GP two. The only reason he only did one year in GP two is he came in and won it. So it was always complete that level before you move on. And Strollers Strollers completed level one and two with flying colours. Uh, but there is kind of a third level that he has skipped, and that that's the one thing that maybe uh, you'd like to do a little bit more patience. The counter argument is that GP two F two, as I keep forgetting to call it now, it's not generally a one season appointment. Now you need to have a couple of years in it. But he's he's young; he, he had the time, so that that maybe puts a little bit of pressure on him. Is that a legacy of the Max Verstappen thing? Do you think? I th- Probably. I think since Verstappen came in and has been so sensational pretty much straight away in F1 that it's made other drivers and managers and whoever yeah, probably, yeah. don't actually need to spend a million or whatever it is on, on F2 and go straight into F1 uh, but I think that he's he's almost the exception that proves the rule you know, clearly he's, he's one of the next guys you know? I think Verstappen is a, is a force of nature and I, and I think I think Lance Stroll can be a very good Grand Prix driver but I would be surprised if he proves to be better than Verstappen overall That that's just because Verstappen is a ridiculous talent yeah people grow up at different speeds Absolutely. and i don't think there is a young driver template and just because max verstappen was ready for formula one at the age of 18 doesn't mean another person is you think Julian palmer is doing a perfectly respectful respectable job rather and it's taken him a while to come through the works and develop his craft but there's no doubting that he is a very competent and complete Formula One driver. It's just taken him a bit longer to get to that position than Max Verstappen has. It's where you end up, isn't it? It's the it's the ultimate performance that I mean, okay, I know that teams can't wait forever for you to get there, but if you you know, if you can deliver once you know, once you're done once you're there, you know, who who cares really whether you've had two, six or eight seasons somewhere else. Exactly. And also it's worth remembering that Verstappen was moulded as a racing driver by his father, Jos Verstappen veteran of over 100 Grand Prix starts over a long period of time. He took a very constructive approach. I've spoken to Jos about this, and he's talked about how he tried to make sure Max learned from Jos's mistakes because Jos never had anyone who was able to give him the same level of guidance. So in that regard, Verstappen has had that education from the moment he was first driving a car, which is very valuable. Stroll's had some great opportunities, and and he's doing well, but it's, it's not quite the same. But you're right. This is a rookie season. He should be judged as a rookie. And that's the only thing that, that anyone can ask. And, you know, he wasn't the only one. Stoffel van Dorn didn't have the easiest of weekends, admittedly, in, in not a great car, which actually does does bring us on to, on to McLaren. 
Now, the fact that McLaren did better than expectations, I think, says a lot about how bad they were in testing. I'd in say the- they did less badly than <laughs> we expected. Well, exactly. Well, Fernando Alonso was hanging on to a points position before before he slowly eventually retired with it was actually traced to, to some floor damage uh there's initially con- uh, suspicion it was suspension problems the car was pulling obviously we had that moment when he was passed by uh by hulkenberg and uh ocon uh that three wide moment which was the the kind of highlight of the, the racing moment Alonso himself described it as probably my best race ever after the race it, it, it was an extremely good performance i, I think probably he was uh, making a little bit of a point with, well, yes, we did a bit better than we thought, but I was driving incredibly, which he can do. It was a really strong performance. I don't think it was his best race, but very, very good. He's so, definitely put, laid down a marker to Van Dorn, hasn't he? He's yeah. a very good driver. And Van Dorn will rise to it. I've no, I've no doubt there. No doubt there. So where is this for McLaren? We had the Allsport magazine cover ahead of the race about uh, McLaren in McLaren in crisis. Was that 84-point text, Kev, or even larger? <laughs> it wasn't wrong, though, was it? I don't think. I mean, OK, so Alonso was just about... I mean, how he got to within half a dozen laps of the end of the race still in a, <laughs> yeah. still in a point... That, that, that car had no business being in that position Put it this all. way. When they were trying to get Fernando Alonso to sign for 2015, I don't think they were saying, oh, Fernando, if you sign for 15, put in some hard work in your third season with the team, you could be in a position to maybe hang on to a point in the Australian Grand Prix if your car doesn't fall apart. Dear Lord, it is desperate, isn't it? But you you have to hope for the best for them because McLaren are part of the tapestry of Formula One and they should be up there. They have the resources. They've got two exceedingly good drivers and for Fernando Alonso to now have spent more than half his career in terrible cars, you just wonder what he's done to deserve it. It was kind of quite fun for a season to watch Alonso in a bad car. Not from a, oh, he serves him right getting into a bad car, but from the perspective, it's always interesting to see real top drivers ending up in terrible cars. And he did some great things. But it's pretty boring when you've got one of the best drivers out there trying to fight for the odd the odd point here in that. Well, when you're assessing the great drivers, which is obviously one of the things we like to do, yeah, you want you want to see them have had a season or two in a, a bit of a mediocre, you know, mediocre machinery to see if they you know step up to the plate and really drag it places where it shouldn't have been. Well, I mean, Alonso dragged the uh, not very good Ferrari almost to the World Championships. I think he's ticked that box, but to continue having to tick it with a car that's even worse. I mean, he now is in the in, in the realms of he should be racking up more wins and championships. You know, if you look at the, the best drivers of the last well since post Marcus Schumacher to me it's obviously Vettel Vettel Hamilton uh, and Alonso the three names that stick out but you know Vettel had his long his period of time Red Bull lots of domination four world championships racked up over 40 Grand Prix wins which left Lewis a bit behind uh, but then he got his chance at Mercedes he's now done the same he's putting up the big numbers um, and Alonso still stuck there who was ahead of them at the start of all that and he's just you, you struggle to see whether there'll be an opportunity for him to actually add any more wins to his tally well that's the interesting question isn't it he's a free agent for next year so so what happens he's not necessarily got a reputation as always the easiest person to deal with so maybe some doors are not open that might be but, it, but it'll be interesting to see what happens you know maybe that maybe that he's stuck with stuck with McLaren from that from that perspective it, it's gonna it's just gonna be another long hard season isn't it for McLaren sadly and, and it is a shame because you want to see McLaren up there as well it's a team that has the history, just as you want to see the the Works Renault team, uh, which is very much in the midfield, but this is kind of its effective first year. 
they were always going to need some time to get up there. So you want to see that up there. You look at who's got the potential to be up at the front. And there's maybe, maybe you say it's the three teams that are up there, then it's McLaren and Renault are the five that you could say, well, actually, their theoretical potential with the resource and what they've got behind them, they're all in the same sort of ballpark. Whereas you'd sort of say teams like Williams, strong as they are, they're just a little bit back in terms of the overall resource. So they're always going to be the kind of plucky privateers rather than the, the big mighty teams. That's just what needs to happen. But it's, uh, yeah, it's going, to be a, it's going to be a long season of battling for the odd the odd crumb for uh, for Alonso. The dreaded P word, potential. Yes, yeah. Well, that's there's obviously potential for the for the whole McLaren thing to go a very different way, isn't there? And there's all the talk about sounding out Mercedes about engine deals. It's uh, you know the McLaren Honda partnership was meant to be a, a match made in heaven, just like it was last time round. But it, it's just turning to it's turning to a worse nightmare than anyone might have feared. I mean, there is one. Just going back to something you touched on, Stuart, as well, is that. If Alonso is still performing at that level, you know whether or not he was his best score pre book, but that sort of level, then that is a great barometer for for Vandor. You know, if, if Alonso started to fall away, and he thought, well, then let's say Vandor starts beating Mizzet because Alonso's lost interest. But if he's still absolutely at the top of his game, and Vandor starts to get to that level, then you know you've got you know you've got the next. You know, for, for me, Vandor, it should be a Vandor Verstappen battle in the, you know say five years time, when the current crop of front runners sort of, you know, retiring and moving on doing other things. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's encouraging that Alonso is such a good benchmark for Van Dorn to come up against. You see, you should be very careful as a magazine editor because long names like Van Dorn and Verstappen can be very difficult for front covers. Yeah, you're not going to be able to put them in 84-point text, are you? Max is quite short, though, and that's all right. We can do that. <laughs> I think what you want is UGE Day back and, and, and winning. Beware the Did E-Days of March. Cover? I know. I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe surprised. I think he probably struggled. Maybe for the odd, uh, the odd uh, victory in Japan, but uh, no, no, he won't have done. So, are we all now pretty convinced overall that that Ferrari is in the game? That's, I think so. The, yeah, that's a that's a positive. So, should everyone be excited about about the season to come? Is this the great Vettel Hamilton title fight that we've we've had a bit of before? Obviously, twenty ten they were both in contention, uh, very very clearly. But it, and twenty twelve had McLaren not lost so many points. It could have been, but is this is this their head-to-head year? It's the best chance for it, certainly since the hybrid engine regulations came in, isn't it? To have a proper two teams at the front, and as you say, a Vettel Hamilton face-off would be, you know, would be excellent. I had been a little bit concerned that Vettel wasn't quite at his best and might sink into being a winger, and I said that in the podcast last week. So it's actually delightful and surprising, and and. Very, very encouraging to see him pretty much on top form and really bossing a car, not not seeming to be under pressure at any point and just showing great joy at the end of a race. Well, one thing to add to that, actually, Lewis's body language after he got out of the car, I don't think we've seen him look so positive after losing a race. He looked genuinely like, actually, this is this. He relishes the fight. You know, it's a guy in another team. I think he quite likes the idea of being able to take on Vettel across a season. Um, you know, he is a racer. I know we overuse that word, but I think Lewis could, if it is close, I think Lewis would be quite looking forward he's there to for, it. He's there for absolutely the right reasons, Lewis. Absolutely, isn't he? he'll he'll rise to it, and we'll see the best of him. That's all you want to see. You want to see the best drivers, people like. Vettel, like Hamilton, like Alonso, won't be in the title fight. Ricardo, Verstappen, Raikkonen. You want these guys at their best in good cars, absolutely relishing the fight rather than being a little bit, uh, a little bit bored by the whole thing. And that's hopefully what we're starting to see, not just with the competitive order, but also the the changes for this year. 
Well, we can but hope the Chinese Grand Prix the weekend after next gives us so many topics to discuss. There's certainly little doubt that Mercedes and Hamilton in particular will be wanting to come back fighting. In the meantime, head to autosport.com for all the latest news from Formula One and the whole world of motorsport. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out every Thursday and the new look F1 Racing out every month. We'll be back next week for another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. favorite piece of commentary uh over a pa was at an event called dunsfold wings and wheels about four years ago and it was an event <coughs> afflicted by chronic bad weather and so the, the wings element was not very prevalent because they had what they called <laughs> a low sky yeah. and the commentators were just filling time and at one point they they promised uh, some sort of plane would be coming and he was uh he was praising talking very slowly so as to fill time but he was praising the knowledge of his audience and saying the british public are well versed in matters of aviation when you mention the gypsy moth and they think not of itinerant lepidoptera this this is going to be our new talking style shall leave these glorious dramatic warm pauses i'm not very good at that that's not not my style when it does it it's a little bit creepy Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.